the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 18. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He, was a wit- he came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn now our attention to the scriptures of truth and to this amazing passage, we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our midst and in our hearts. We pray that you would remove from our hearts and our minds the distractions and the obstacles that prevent us from truly hearing your voice and understanding your truth. Lord, I pray that we would understand what we've read, we would reflect on it eagerly. I pray that you would teach us through the preaching of your word. And Lord, we pray that what we see would set us free and bring glory to your name. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was a kid, my family and I watched a lot of musicals. And if you're familiar with musicals, whether uh, as, a, as films or whether live, um, you probably know that most musicals begin with an overture or a prelude, right? You ever seen one of those old mu- musicals as a movie and you know the credits are going and there'll be 
an overture. And basically in the overture, the, the main songs of the musical are sampled in the overture. You kind of get a, a sampling of all the main songs that you're going to hear. It's like the whole play is kind of squeezed together into miniature, minus all the lyrics and minus all the dialogues. And I remember as a kid not liking the overture, you know. I remember thinking, can't we just fast forward through the overture and get to the, get to the actual musical, get to the actual play? And I thought it was really long and kind of pointless. But that was because I didn't understand and appreciate the purpose of the overture. If we, if we had fast forwarded through that, we would have not fully enjoyed the whole experience that the film had to offer. The overture in a musical is meant to help us transition from the world that we're living in and the duties that we have and all that and be a bridge to this show that we're about to watch, right? It kind of helps us get our minds in place that, okay, put aside the, uh, the concerns and the worries and now I'm just going to enjoy what's about to come. The overture prepares us for what's to come. It also sets the mood. It, kinda, it tells us what the mood of this musical is. It tells us what we're to expect in terms of its mood. It introduces its main themes or in song, and it's meant to draw us in and make us excited about what we're about to watch. You know, you listen to the overture, oh, I'm excited, but for what's kind of like this song, I like this musical, I'm ready to go. I think to get the most out of it, one needs to appreciate and enjoy those overtures. Now, when we turn from musicals to the Gospel of John, we're turning from that which is leisurely and trivial to that which is unspeakably serious, my friends, and vital. And yet, that doesn't mean that we can't see a similarity between them. The passage that we read this morning, verses 1 through 18, is called the prologue of the Gospel of John. I don't know how many of you knew that. Perhaps most of you. And the prologue of the Gospel of John functions much like an overture or a prelude of a musical. So this is the, what the prologue is doing. It functions like an overture in that it prepares us for what's to come. It sets the mood of the entire book. It introduces the main themes of the Gospel of John, and it's also meant to draw us in. How many of you noticed that? I mean, did you feel drawn in when we read that? Did you, as we read it, was it interesting? Was it, wow, this is very interesting. Was the mood being set for you? Were you getting your appetite wet for the rest of the Gospel of John and wanting to be drawn in? The prologue does all these things, and it's plain to those who are attentive that it does these things. What was the mood? What was the mood or the feeling that you got from the prologue? Was it comedy? Did you get the sense that it was comedy? No. The mood is not comedy. We're not about to read a a comedic work. Was it gloomy? Was was the prologue gloomy, telling us this book's going to be a gloomy one? Hold hold on to your, your seats. No. You can uh, share with me afterwards your own feelings. Here's my feelings. Sublimity. Had a mood of sublimity. That means I get a real sense of the sublime as I'm reading the prologue. This, This is telling me this book is dealing with deep, deep things, the deep things of God. And so it's sublime. It's holy. I approach it in reverence. That's the only correct attitude as we go into the Gospel of John. Amen?
I get also a, a sense and a feeling of tragedy. Did you pick up that sense of tragedy? You know that part in the prologue where it says, the world was made by him. But the world did not know him. And he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. There's a sense of tragedy in this, right? And as we go on in the Gospel of John, we're going to see that there is tragedy there. There's real sorrow in Jesus regarding those who don't accept him. So we have sublimity, tragedy, and also I get the real strong feeling of hope, of good news, right? This is, as I'm reading this, it's saying this is, this is something that is good. This is hopeful for us, for me. We got um, the theme of grace here, don't we? We've got the theme of becoming the children of God for all who receive him. So there's real good news in this prologue, and it's telling us this is what we're to expect as we read the Gospel of John. Sublimity, tragedy, but good news, hope as well. The main themes in the prologue will be expanded on throughout the Gospel of John. Here's, in a nutshell, the main themes of the prologue. The Word who was with God and who is God came into the world as the light of the world. This Word who came into the world as the light of the world was rejected by the world, but to those who believe in this Word, they are given the right to become the children of God and they receive abundance of grace and truth and they receive the true knowledge of God. Wow, that is truly amazing. D.A. Carson tells us that the rest of the book is nothing other than an expansion on this. So as we go on in the Gospel of John, we're really just opening up the main themes that are introduced to us here in the prologue. And it draws us in My friends, unless you are totally numb on the inside, uh, these things must immediately strike you as relevant and things that are greatly of your concern. We're talking here about God. This is a serious and significant work about God, about our Creator, about our origin. And it's a book about who who He is. This is what the prologue is telling us. This book is about God. This book is about the one who created you and everything. This is about where you came from. And it's about who he is. Now, unless you're totally numb on the inside, you will be drawn in by this if you're an attentive reader, right? You'll think, my goodness, this greatly concerns me. I'm interested in what John is going to say. And not only is it about God and who he is, the prologue tells us that in him is life. Now, life is something that all of us are very interested in, isn't it? How many of you are interested in life? And you're not only interested in in living for a very long time, as long as you possibly can, preferably forever, right? You're not only interested in living a long time, you want to live well, don't you? Every one of us, right? We we don't want to die. We want to live, and we want to live well. And the prologue tells us that in God is life. And what he means by this is is eternal life. That means there's no death in God. God possesses life and life eternal. And he's not simply telling us, as we're going to see as we go on in the Gospel of John, that God merely lives forever, but God lives well forever. Amen? That whatever we want, 
when we say we want life, God has it. It is in him. And the prologue not only tells us that it's in him, but that God desires to give us this life. Wow. I don't know about you, but I'm drawn in. You know? I was okay, tell me more. I want this life. And the tragedy is, is that the, the world characteristics characteristically rejects the very one who has life. And so we're also given a warning in the prologue, of God, the prologue of the Gospel of John. Watch out because the characteristic of the world is to reject this. And so if we are not numb on the inside, my friends, and we're attentive listeners, then these will draw us in, and I trust they will draw you in, and that you will be eager to look at the rest of the Gospel of John. This morning, I'm going to highlight and comment on the five main points of the prologue. If we miss any of these points that John makes, we've really missed his main points. We've missed the purpose of the prologue. And I won't be dealing with the prologue exhaustively this morning, maybe to your disappointment, but as we go on in the Gospel of John, because everything else is an expansion of this prologue, we'll be frequently referring back to it and, and expanding on it more and more. So don't expect this morning a, you know, a complete exhaustive treatment of the prologue. We'll, get, we'll fill in more of the blanks as we go on. But I'd like to just comment and highlight the five main points that John makes. We don't want to miss any of these points or else we'll miss the prologue's purpose. Number one, the existence of the word. Number two, all things were made by the Word. Three, the Word became flesh. It's a huge point here, isn't it, in the prologue. Four, those who believe in the Word become the children of God. And five, the Word is full of grace and truth. Okay, those are the main points he wants us to grasp in this prologue that he'll be expanding on. So first of all, the existence of the word. Let's look again at verse 1 and 2. John writes, in the beginning was the word. He's telling us, he's revealing this to us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is what John, the inspired writer, thought was best, he, this is what he thought was the best way to introduce his gospel, okay? And we cannot understand the rest of the gospel of John without getting this. This is how he begins. He's the inspired writer, but filled with the Holy Spirit to write these things, and he starts right here. I'm not going to dwell upon certain facts that all Christians know regarding these verses. The facts that John is identifying Jesus of Nazareth, this man that he knew, as the Word. Okay, That's a fact we all know as Christians. I'm not going to labor it this morning. When John says, in the beginning was the Word, he is referring to Jesus of Nazareth, and he's calling him the Word. And he's stating in perfect plainness that Jesus is God, and that Jesus was with God, before the creation of the world, and in fact, uh, he was with God everlastingly. 
That's, those, are, those are facts that all Christians ought to know, and I think we do all know. The word is Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus was with God forever. And we're going to actually find Jesus himself making these very statements about himself later in the Gospel of John, won't we? He's going to talk about the very fact that he existed with the Father before the creation of the world. He's going to talk about that. And he's going to make it clear that he is God. Rather, instead of discussing that John identifies Jesus as the Word of God, I'd like to talk about why John identifies Jesus as the Word of God and what does it mean that Jesus is the Word of God. There's a potential misunderstanding in this statement, the Word. In English, as we all know, the word, word, can mean a lot of different things, can't it? Okay? So, one thing the word, word, can mean, and I'm just illustrating it in that sentence, it can mean a single lexical entry, okay? So, in the beginning was the word, and by word we could mean a single lexical entry. That is just a single word unit. Word. That's a word. Okay? <laughs> Banana. That is a word. The letters that combine the word and the syllables that make up that word, that's just one word. But as we know, this word, word, can also mean so much more than that. And we use, that, uh, this, other, we use this word in other ways. For example, have you heard any word from, the, from my friend? Right? Has anyone heard any word of him? Or put in a good word for me? Right? Or, may I have a word with you? See, when we say that, we're not referring to a single lexical entry, right? May I have one single word entry from you? No, we don't mean that. Have you heard any single word entry from that man? No. Put in a good single word for me? No. When we say this, we're not talking about just a single word unit. We're talking about a message. We're talking about content, right? Content of that which is spoken. We're talking about... Speaking that communicates or expresses the thoughts of the speaker. And we use the the word word this way as well. Now, brothers and sisters, the scholars, the commentators are convinced, and I am as well, that it is this latter meaning of the word, this content, this message, this speaking that expresses the thoughts of the speaker, That is the sense in which John says that Jesus of Nazareth is the Word. And in fact, um, scholars propose many different translations of this that give us the idea. So, for example, they might say, in the beginning was the message, and the message was with God, and the message was God. John Calvin himself said, in the beginning was the speech. Some say, in the beginning was the wisdom. In the beginning was the instruction. Even in the beginning was the sermon. And the sermon was with God and the sermon was God. All of these different ways of translating it communicate that we're dealing with the expression of thought. We're dealing with a message and with content. St. Augustine famously comments on this section. He says, Whatever things are spoken and pass away are sounds, are letters, are syllables. Augustine loved to talk about this. So he talked about how when you speak, 
As I'm speaking right now, you're hearing sounds, but when I stop speaking, the sounds are gone. The syllables are gone, right? But that which the sound signified and was in the speaker as he thought of it and in the hearer as he understood it, that remains while the sounds pass away. Interesting. Look, I'm not saying anything anymore. But what I've said is still with you, right? Because my speaking is communicating what's in my mind. And it's coming to you, and now it's in your mind, and it's there. And even though the syllables and the words and everything have stopped, what is expressed is, remain, is what remains. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance, of, there's, there's things inside you that come out of your mouth. And he's not just talking about sounds and syllables, but the content and the message and the thoughts that come out and remain, that reveal yourself, that reveal what's on the inside of a person. And so what we're dealing with here, brothers and sisters, when we look at in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, is that Jesus is the expressed thought of God. When we say that Jesus is the word of God, don't think single unit, word unit, don't think sounds and syllables, think Jesus is the expressed thought of God. Jesus is the word of God in the sense the message of God revealing the heart of God. You want to know what's inside God? Jesus. And he will show you by seeing him and hearing him and understanding him, he will show you the Father. He will show you who is in God. Look at verse 18. The prologue begins and ends in the exact same way. It's kind of bracketed by the very same thought. And verse 18 is an expansion of verse 1. And I'd like you to notice that there's three elements to verse 18. They're the exact same three elements that are in verse 1. So the first is, um, well, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God. Now, some translations will say the only begotten Son but uh, the, the correct translation is the only begotten God. The only begotten Son is based on actually a corrupt manuscript. But the only begotten God. The only begotten God is paralleled in verse 1 with the Word was God. We're dealing with the same thing. The Word that was in the beginning was God. And in verse 18, we have a statement about God as well. Who is in the bosom of the Father. There's the second element who is in the bosom of the Father, is paralleled with, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He's the only begotten God. And he is in the bosom of the Father, meaning he's with God. He has explained him. That is the Word. That is paralleled to the Word. The Word is that which explains or reveals or unveils who God is. He's with the Father in intimate communion in the bosom of the Father, and he himself is God. John Calvin comments, the breast of God is laid open to us in Jesus. We're talking about Jesus being the word and the expression of the heart of God. And while there are similarities between our words and God's words, in the sense that we can say about both, that our words express who we are inside, and God's word expresses who he is inside, there are also irreconcilable differences between 
God's words and our words. God's word has a quality that our words do not have. God can speak and things happen. God can say, let there be light and there is light. I can shout at these lights all day and nothing will happen, right? So God's word is qualitatively different than our word, even though they both reveal our hearts and what's inside of us. But even more mysterious than the fact that God's word has power and our words don't, the Bible reveals to us, this is not known by our reason, but by God's revelation, that God's word has independent personality. I can't explain that to you. That's not something that I know by reason, okay? It's not something that I can argue. Well, you know, we all have words, and the words reveal ourselves, and, and the words have independent in personality. I can't. But I can tell you that God's that the scriptures reveal that God's word has independent personality. That is, that God's word is a person. That which reveals the heart of God and that which is called his word is Jesus Christ, his beloved and only begotten son. What an amazing revelation that is. There's clues of this in the Old Testament. God sent forth his word and healed them. The word of God comes down from heaven and accomplishes that for which God sent it. But they're faint clues. But it's distinctly made known in the New Testament, and particularly in the Gospel of John, that when we're talking about God's word, we're talking about Jesus, his son. I'm in no way suggesting that there was at one time simply the Father and he had his internal thoughts and then he expressed himself and Jesus came into existence. As John 1.1 tells us and as the rest of the Gospel of John will tell us and the rest of the New Testament will tell us, the Father and the Son have always existed together. That is, the Son has always been the Word with the Father and God. There has never been a time when God could be known apart from his word and there never will be a time when God could be known apart from his word. They've always been together. And in Revelation 19, when Jesus Christ comes the second time, there's a description of him. Here he is, this person coming on a horse, his robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. You see, we're not, we've come to an extremity of reason at this point. We're not in a place of rationalization, but of worship. Thou art the everlasting word, the Father's only Son, God manifestly seen and heard, and heaven's beloved one. In thee most perfectly expressed, the Father's glories shine, of the full deity possessed, eternally divine. True image of the infinite, whose essence is concealed, brightness of uncreated light, the heart of God revealed. We ought to just worship if we believe this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word is a person, and the Word reveals to us who the heart of God is. Wow. This is the first main point that John wants to make, the existence of the Word. Secondly, look at verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come 
into being. This is as clear a statement as any you'll find. And what John is emphasizing, do you notice in this verse? John is emphasizing that all things were made by the word. He's emphasizing, he says all things, then he's quick to say, and there was nothing that was made that wasn't made by the word. That means, brothers and sisters, we cannot conceive of anything apart from Jesus. Isn't that amazing? We can't conceive of anything. You, you name it. Even sin. No, even sin, you, you conceive, is, is not apart from Jesus. All things, this whole world, was made by the Word. That's truly a staggering thought. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, where Paul makes the same statement. He just expands on it a little bit. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 16, Colossians 1, 16, speaking of Jesus, for by him, how many things were created? All things. Just the visible things? Just the earthly things? He says here, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things. You cannot conceive of anything apart from Jesus. That does include sin. It includes Satan. It includes angels. It includes everything in this physical universe. It was made and sustained by him. Not only was it made, but it still is because of him, because of Jesus. And Paul adds that it was also made for him. It wasn't just made by him, but it was made for him. All things exist for the word, by the word and for the word. And when we tie this back in with the Gospel of John, this is what that means. All things, brothers and sisters and friends, were made for the revelation of the Father. Can we say that the true statement? If the word is the revelation of who God is, If Jesus the Son is the revelation of the Father and all things were made by him and for him, then all things were made to reveal the Father. Everything is to make God known. And there's verses in the Bible that say essentially that thing, isn't there? All things exist to make God known through Christ. You, me, flowers, killer bees, planet Earth, Mars, the Milky Way, Everything exists to make God known through Jesus Christ. The good, the bad, and the ugly. That is the purpose of creation. It is the revelation of of God through Christ. If someone asks you, why did God create the world? What should your answer be? Because he was lonely? No, he was not lonely. You know, one of the things that I hear often is that People will say God created the universe to make creatures so that they could have free will, so that he could have a relationship of uncoerced love with them. That is the reason why God created the universe. 
He created the whole universe because he needed to have a love relationship with somebody. So he created us, gave us free will, and he... No, that is not what the Bible anywhere says. The Bible says that God created the whole world to reveal himself through Jesus Christ. That is why he made the world. And that should be our answer to those who ask. Thirdly, turning back to John, all things were made by the word for the purpose of the word. And his third main point in the prologue that we need to grasp, that we desperately, he wants us to see, is that the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Look at verse 4 with me. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. In verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now I read, I read all that because I want to draw our attention to this point that John is making, that the word became flesh and by coming into the world, comes into the world as a light. This is one of the central points of the prologue. It's one of the most sublime truths of history, what we as Christians have called the incarnation. That is, the word became flesh. It's amazing he uses the word flesh. He doesn't just say the word became a man or the word came to earth. But he says the word became flesh. The word took part of this fleshy creation, this fleshy existence. Jesus came right into the grit and became a part of it to bring light to this world. And since the world was created, brothers and sisters, for the purpose of the word, the revelation of God, and since Jesus' coming into the world was for the purpose of revealing God to us, we can, we can safely say and draw this conclusion that the world was created for the incarnation and that what happened 2,000 years ago was the reason the world was created. Amazing. If God created the world to reveal himself and sent Jesus into the world to reveal himself, the world was created for the incarnation. 2,000 years ago, those events, and of course events that are going to happen, but particularly the revelation of God in Christ that came is the purpose for the creation of the world. It's really staggering if we, if we meditate upon that. Look at verse 4 again. What does this mean? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's a hard verse. The commentators that I've read, all of them struggle with it, and they, they say it's hard to interpret. And maybe you'll agree this is a hard one to wrap your mind around. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. But I think the, the way to interpret this verse is to consider what Jesus later says about life. And in John chapter 17, if you'd like to just turn there and hold your finger in John 1, John 17, verse 3. Jesus has this to say about life. In 
in John 17, verse 3, we're, you know, in this, in this chapter, Jesus is saying a lot of things that sound just like the prologue, but he says here, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, so he equates eternal life with the knowledge of the Father. That's very interesting. So when we're talking about eternal life, we're not merely talking about the bare fact of living forever, but the quality of knowing God. And it is what Jesus is saying here is that the life is to know God. And if you don't know God, then you do not have the life. You do not have the quality of life that you so desperately want and that God made you to have. You do not have the life until you know God. You ever, you know that expression, right? This is the life. When do you say that? You say that when you're sitting on the beach with a, a nice drink and no, no care in the world. You say, this is the life, you know, this is the life that I want. Well, you don't know the life until you know God through Jesus Christ. And that life is in God himself. That is, God has no death in him. God lives forever and he really lives. God himself in himself has that life. But the amazing thing is, is that God wants to share that life and give that life to us. And when we know God, we too possess that life. The Bible tells us when you know God, when you believe in Jesus Christ and thereby come to know God, you also have a life that will never end. You are removed from death and you will enjoy him forever and possess that life that he has and that he enjoys. That's a truly amazing thing. So if I were to paraphrase John 1, 4, going back there, I would say, I would put it this way. In Christ was the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God is the light of man. Okay, In him is life. And for us, that means the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God is the light of men. If we don't know God, we're in darkness. His coming into the world is the bringing of this light into the darkness, that we might see the truth, see things as they really are, and understand who God really is. John is not saying here that before Jesus came, there was no light in the world at all. In fact, John gives us an example of John the Baptist. The, the, the author, John, gives us the example of John the Baptist. He says, John was a light, but John was not the light. And the, the evangelist's point here is that John and the prophets before John, they were lights in this world, but they were only lights in this world because they themselves were enlightened by the true light. Kind of like the sun and the moon, Okay. The moon is a light to this world, right? I mean, at night, it's nice to have the moon because you can see a little bit. But the moon doesn't have in itself the light, does it? The moon simply is reflecting the light of the sun to us. And so in that sense, we're getting the light of the sun from the moon. That's what John and the prophets were like. They were lights. That's what we are as Christians in this world as well. We're lights. We're shining. We're telling people the truth. But Christ and him alone, he is the true fountainhead of light. He is the sun. He is no dim reflection of God. He is God himself, and he is the one who enlightens everybody else. That's what John is saying here. 
And look at verse 9. By coming into the world, he enlightens every man. What does that mean? That's another one of those hard statements. There are some people who interpret verse 9, the part about enlightening every man, and they think that that's simply referring to the fact that human beings the world over have a conscience. Human beings essentially know right from wrong. And they'll say that's called the light of Christ. Have you ever heard that before? The light of Christ is just the fact that all human beings essentially know right from wrong. They have a conscience. They're inwardly illuminated with that basic knowledge. But that's, that can't be the correct interpretation of this verse since this verse says that by coming into the world, he enlightens every man. His enlightening has to do with him coming into the world. Nor can this verse mean that by coming into the world, Christ inwardly illuminates all men with the gospel because we know that not all men are saved and will be saved. So it can't mean that by coming into the world, he brings light to everybody and everybody becomes a child of the light. But rather, we should take this as a general statement of the truth that by coming into the world, Christ shines the truth of God on externally all people and demands a response from them. He enlightens everyone. doesn't mean he illuminates them on the inside, but he, he shines upon them. His message comes to all people through the preaching of the gospel. And when it comes to them, they have to deal with that. They have to respond. They have to give an answer. And unfortunately, many people will run from that light, will turn from that light and reject that light. And we see that there are two responses to this light that shines on you and on all people. Which brings us to our fourth point. Not only did the, is there the Word and all things are made by the Word and the Word became flesh to bring light into the world and shines on all men. But the fourth point John wants to show us in this prologue is that those who believe in the Word become the children of God. And this is so glorious and blessed. This really is such a wonderful truth. And I hope we feel it deeply as Christians. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What John tells us here is that the trademark response of the world is to reject the truth of God. When Jesus comes and says, you know, my friends, this is what God really is like. The trademark response of the world is, no, thank you. We don't like that. That's uncomfortable. That's not what I thought. I can't believe that. That doesn't make sense to me. The trademark response is not humbly receiving that truth and saying, really? Wow. I need to correct my thinking. But the, the trademark is, I don't like this. It doesn't fit with my own wisdom and my own thoughts. And so they reject it. And verse 5 tells us the darkness cannot seize the light. 
That is, it cannot stop it, nor can it grasp it and understand it. The world is ignorant, verse 10 tells us, of who their God is. Isn't that an amazing thing? The world is ignorant of who God is, brothers and sisters. That is, all the religions in the world that do not believe in Jesus Christ, they may, they may appear very devout on the outside, they may talk about God a lot, but all the religions of this world who reject the revelation of God through Jesus, doesn't matter how much they seem to worship God, they are ignorant of who God is, because you can only know him through Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says he came to his own. He came to Israel. He came to his own people. The religious people. The educated people. And even they rejected him. So we shouldn't think that, well, if you're uneducated, you'll reject, you'll reject Christ. You know, if you're irreligious, you'll reject Christ. But rather, as we take from this, this prologue, if you belong to the world and the world's ways, you will reject Christ doesn't matter how sophisticated and educated or religious you are. But although the world and Israel characteristically rejects the light, John tells us here the same thing that the Old Testament tells us, that there has always been and will always be a remnant of those who respond positively to the light. And as it was in the past, so it is today. Despite the fact the world hates and rejects the truth, there remains some who do not reject it because they do not belong to this world. That's what he says. They don't belong to the world. That's why they receive the truth. And Jesus will elaborate, expand on this in chapter 3, verse 6. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And here we see that they are not the children of men or the children of the flesh who receive the word, but they are the children of God. And brothers and sisters, this is a major theme in the Gospel of John. You have not rightly understood the Gospel of John, John's theology, Jesus' thinking, unless you have understood not only that there is the word for whom all things are made, but that there is in this world people who are of God who will receive that, that truth. And by believing in the truth, Jesus tells, or John tells us here, that they are given the right to become the children of God. My friends, there is no higher privilege. There is no higher honor. There is no better situation that any person could ever attain to than being a child of God. See, this gets watered down, especially around here in our culture, where everyone is seen as a child of God, right? It's like, it's a no big deal. We're all children of God. That's not what John says here. He says, to those and to those only who receive him and believe in him, they are given the right to be called and to become the children of God, they and they only. And when we see it as this wondrously unique and amazing thing, then as Christians, we will marvel that we have become the children of God. Like John does in his letter, 1 John 3, behold what a marvelous love God has shown us that we should be called the children of God. To be a child of God means that you are in God's family, that you are righteous as he is righteous through Christ, and that God is your God and Father. You can come to him boldly. He takes care of you and works everything for your good. And you have 
eternity to enjoy with him in his own house. You are a child of God if you are a Christian. I want to just encourage all believers here this morning. If you believe in Christ and what he's done and what he's brought, you are a child of God. And don't see that as a little thing, but as the greatest thing that God could bestow upon you. And lastly this morning, the final major point that John wants us to see is that the word is full of grace and truth. And look at verse 14 again with me, just the second part of verse 14. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Boy, he likes to use the word grace a lot, doesn't he? John is basically saying, when Jesus came into the world and we saw him and received him, we saw his glory. And do you want to know what that glory was? If I could describe it to you, the nature of that glory, John would say it was full of grace and truth. Literally, it was full to the brim. There was nothing lacking in the grace department and truth department in Jesus. Nothing. It was full of grace and truth. And as we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John, everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does, his works, his words, and especially his going to the cross and laying himself, laying down his life for sinners, is a revelation of his glory, full of grace and truth. And what John is saying here is that if you want to know God as he really is, then you must know him as a God who is full of grace and truth because that's his heart. You want to know who, what's in there? You know God exists and you know he's powerful and you know he created the world and you know he gave the law through Moses, but do you really know what's in there? Do you really know how he's expressed and revealed himself to the world? It is full of grace and truth. And I want to just tell you this morning, you may be religious. You may have a strong conviction that there is a God. You may think you worship God Sunday after Sunday. And you may know that God gave the law through Moses. And that may be where your understanding of God ends. I know there's a God and I know he's a lawgiver. I know he's got rules and I know I'm supposed to follow those rules. And I know if I don't follow those rules, I won't be saved. And I know if I do follow those rules, I will be saved. Everything there is basically true according to the law of Moses. But if that's all you know of God, then you do not know God because you do not know him through Jesus Christ, the God of grace and truth. The law, my friends, was given to show us our sin The law was given to show us God's righteous standard. God gave the law to Moses to say, I am a righteous and holy and just God, and I cannot have any relationship with someone who is not also righteous and holy. And the law was meant to show us that through our own obedience, through our own efforts, through our own trying to make ourselves righteous and holy, we cannot have relationship with God. We always will end up condemned, cut off from God. 
That's what the commandments are all about. They're not there to help you get back to God. They're there to show you that you can't get back to God that way. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth was realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to give us more laws. Jesus Christ came to reveal God and his glorious salvation, which is what the very name of Jesus means. The law was given to show us we don't have righteousness, and Jesus came to provide for us the righteousness that we cannot achieve through our own works. And by the grace of God, Jesus expressed who God is by dying for our sins, atoning for them, and providing for us the righteousness that we need. As believers, John says, everything that we are and everything that we've received comes from Christ and his superabundant grace. John cannot think of anything that he is as a Christian or has that hasn't come out of the fullness of the grace of Christ. You'll notice there's a parallel with this thought and verse 3. In verse 3, John says, you can't conceive of the universe apart from Jesus. And in verse 16, 14, 15, 16, 17, he says, you can't conceive of the new creation apart from Jesus. You can't, we, everything we are has come from the grace of Christ. And without Christ, we have nothing. I'm going to close just by saying that there's an interesting fact here that the word grace is not used again in the Gospel of John. It's interesting, isn't it? That he says he came, his glory is full of grace and truth, and then the word grace isn't used again. Nor is the word word used again in this way in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is called the word, never again in the Gospel of John. But the idea that Jesus is the word of God who reveals the Father and the idea that the revelation of the Father is full of grace and truth are the controlling ideas for the entire book. And just because those words aren't used doesn't mean that everything else isn't an expansion and a revelation on those powerful points. So here's the prologue of the Gospel of John is the overture to this work. It sets the mood, it introduces the main ideas, and it draws us in. May we get the most out of the Gospel of John as we go on reading because we've appreciated and enjoyed this prologue. And may we praise the Father and Son forever and ever who are worthy to be praised for the revelation of who they are that they've given to us and for inviting us in to share in the eternal life of God. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Father, we praise you for revealing yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ, who we believe was incarnated and became flesh 2,000 years ago and for whom this entire universe and our lives um, were made. Lord, truly this is sublime. And truly, Lord, you deserve all of our worship and all of our praise, our wonder, our awe, our fear, our thanksgiving. You are truly wonderful to us. And Father, we pray for those who have not believed in Christ. We pray that they would this morning see the tragedy of it, 
the tragedy of believing one's own ideas rather than the truth of God, the tragedy of being ignorant of who God is, and the tragedy of missing out on eternal life. Please, by your Holy Spirit, speak to them and show them that they need humility to receive God's truth. May they believe and understand the grace of God today. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We just can't praise you enough. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.